invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter eight. First Samuel chapter eight. Let me just one second here trying to clip this thing on. All right. First Samuel chapter eight. Again, as always, it's good to see everyone. Uh, good to be able to worship God with you again and just to be able to be with a family that is, is, finds that bond through Jesus' blood. Uh, it's always a blessing, and it's just a blessing to be able to continue to study His Word, to try and grow closer to Him through that study, and to try and get to know Him uh, ever, ever more. So that way, as we near eternity, we get to just become more excited, more uh, in love and entranced by uh, that, that reality of where we're going. Um, <clears throat> in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I wanted to look at this story because this is a very familiar, at least it should be if you've been in the adult class, this is a very familiar and uh, impactful story of the Bible. This is that portion where Israel, after the time period of the judges, they say that they want a king. Um, and they say uh, for a couple reasons why they want that king, and it really turns out to be um, really just all negative. There's no redeeming factor, even in the reasonings that the people themselves give as they cry, as they cry out for a king. But I want to just look at this and see what the, what the issue was with their request, and maybe we can make some, some application from that. But then uh, maybe end with just a little bit more application of, or just answering the question, why is it that if it was something that probably should not have been asked, why is it that God grants that? Because after this, you do find that they appoint a king, and they appoint Saul as the first king of Israel. Um, now, ultimately, we're going to look at a few other stories, especially Saul, and uh, kind of make some comparisons between him and David. We're going to do that a little bit tonight. But in the long run, what you find is Saul does not end up being all that. <laughs> they, they wanted a king, and they got him. And it turns out to be um, a little bit to their detriment, as we'll see as we continue on through the, through the study. But as I said, I just want to look, first of all, at what the issue was with their request as the people cry out for a king. Again, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, just read the first few verses here. It says, It came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. We'll pick back up in verse 7 in a moment. <clears throat> but again, there's, there's the, the gist of, of what uh, happens in this story. And really what you find is it doesn't just end in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to look a couple chapters after this because it, for the next few chapters, what it talks about is not just the reasoning behind their decision, but the aftermath that God makes clear 
from that moment, he tries to warn them about uh, what will come if, as they're trying to make this, this uh, as they're trying to ask for this king. First of all, uh, just looking at the, the cry that they give to Samuel, um, I, I would say negligently forgetting God in this request. But first of all, I just want to make the point that I don't think it was necessarily wrong for them to have a king. In Judges chapter 17, what you find actually beginning in Judges chapter 17 is the first of many um, moments where the, the writer just brings this up, brings up the fact that there was no king in Israel, and it almost seems to be in the connotation of, and it wasn't working out very well at this point. Um, in Judges chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, <coughs> or sorry, beginning in verse uh, 6, after it talks about Micah and, and the idolatry that, of the household, and really it's just it's, it's a poor, poor example um, of God's people because they're not acting like God's people. But after this, uh, just a brief moment of, of giving information about this situation, in verse 6 it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And it almost seems like the writer is trying to say, uh, trying to make a, a bit of a connection, think, saying there was no king, and because there was no king, and um, uh, maybe more so pointedly, no righteous king to guide them, they acted in their own way. They wanted to do what was right in their own sight. We talked about the devastation that brings. This actually comes up in chapter 18 and verse 1, in chapter 19 and verse 1, but skipping over to, to, to Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. After an even worse story of a Levite and, and the concubine that is uh, brutally um, ravaged and murdered. And, and after that, the, the effects uh, go throughout all of Israel. They end up fighting each other. And it really seems like there's, just, there's really just no good guys. Um, but at the end of all of this, in verse 25, the very end of the book, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, and so yet again, it, not only did it, has it been saying this a couple of times, but it ends with that point. And so you look at Judges, and, and really it might leave the question of, well, I mean, if this is how the, uh, the, the writer is, is speaking of, of not having a king at the time, then why is it such a big deal when they ask for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8? You even see in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 17... God writes about a king that he would appoint over the people. In Deuteronomy 17, in verse 14 beginning, it says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it, and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he... Cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Wow, it seems like Solomon kind of forgot that, didn't he? Uh, but that's skipping ahead. But in verse 18, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he, sits, uh, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in in the midst of Israel. And so even in the law of God, he provides for this notion that at some point there will be a king over the people. Now you kind of look at this and you say, well, even their reasoning is not necessarily great as he's foretelling what they're going to say. I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. 
Um, and, and I would just say, first of all, as you read through this, it may not have that kind of negative connotation that you find the people in First Samuel chapter 8 saying, we want to look just like them. We want to be like them instead of looking like God's people. Uh, but, but even if it is um, in, in Deuteronomy 17 saying that they are going to make this, this evil uh, cry, if that's what it's saying, either way, it's not like God is saying, well, it's okay. It's okay that they, have, that they are going to ask for something that's, that's evil, ask for something that they shouldn't ask for. Frequently throughout the law, what you have is God making provisions for if you get to this point, this is what you're going to do. Um, it, it's pretty clear that God hates divorce. He says that in Malachi chapter 2. And even from the beginning, uh, what you find is that it was, it was uh, a, a, a one male and one female cleaving to one another and forsaking all the relationships. That, that is the pattern that we see from the very beginning. But then you see in the law a couple of times, I was, I was talking to Brother Randy Reynolds about this um, after uh, one of the services, after one of his, his lessons, I just appreciated something he said and we just kind of got in a conversation about how so much of the law is written kind of as a means to say, you know, this is not a good situation, but just in case if someone gets into this situation, this is what you do. It kind of gives you the steps to take after something unideal or, or just plain unscriptural has happened. Um, and I think maybe this is one of those indications that even should they ask for in an evil way for a king, well, God is giving them provision for what they need to do uh, when they do put a king over themselves. And look at the wisdom behind this. At some point, they are not going to, they're going to almost seemingly regret uh, having a king over them because when you get to the time period of Solomon, they are getting tired of the work that they are doing and building the temple and all of these things, even though they're the most prosperous nation in the world at the time, and even though they're at the most prosperous moment in their history, uh, they're, going to be get, they're going to get tired of this, um, the, the, the work that the king is going to put them through, even though God had warned them all, all these years uh, past. Now, going back to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, with, with all that being said, 1 Samuel chapter 12, I think the main issue is not necessarily that they're, that they're going to have a king over them, but rather they want, honestly, a different king than God would choose. 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 14. Verse 14 of 1 Samuel chapter 12. It says, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Even now take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord uh, will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Now, the reason I wanted to come to this is because even the people, not immediately, but... The people do at some point admit they were wrong in asking for a king for, for uh, the reasons that they give in 1 Samuel chapter 8 because we want to look like the other nations. It wasn't because they were just so pious and thought, you know, I remember God writing about this in his law. And I, and I really want to, to see this happen. That's not the reason they were doing this. They specifically wanted to look like the world. Um, and we've already made the case that that just always leads to destruction. And so it, it was their motives and their desires that were the problem. Now, with all that being said, 
There are two things that I think are, are the main issues when looking at their attitudes and looking back at their desires. First of all, back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 6. It says, The thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And so yet again, you have yet another moment where God is warning them about the consequences of what they're asking for, um, which is always striking to me how blunt, how, how brutally honest, not brutally, that's a bad way of saying it, but how honest God is all throughout to his people. Even when it comes to the exodus, it's not like he says, oh, you're not going to have to do anything. You're not going to have to lift a finger. No, they're going to have to wander a little bit. They're not gonna, it's not, it, not yet to the punishment, but before you actually get to that point of the punishment, they're going to have to follow the, the pillar of fire and, and the cloud to the promised land. And so it's not like they're not going to have to do anything. No, they're going to have to do a little bit of work. But in, in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, chapter 10 in verse 17, chapter 10 in verse 17, it says, Thereafter Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said no but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Now, uh, again, it's, it's, it's not like this all happens all at once because it's chapter 9 and verse 1 that you actually meet Saul, who they're going to appoint as king over Israel. And so it, this does take a bit of time almost to, to, for the story to fully <laughs> culminate. Because as we already read in chapter 12, they even admit that they have done wrong in, in asking for a king in this way. But, but why was it wrong? How was it that they were rejecting him in this way? Ultimately, I think it's because they were trying to replace him as their leader, as their king, as their judge. They wanted a different kind of king to judge over them. Not God necessarily. And maybe it was just that they had forgotten him. Frankly, I think that it was not necessarily that they forgot him. They just didn't want to remember him. And honestly, I think, I think this, you hear this a lot today even, not necessarily in the same way, give us a king, but you hear this when people say, when they talk about Jesus, I, I don't want that king. I want a king that fits my standards. I want a king that, that gives me another way of life. Listen, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What happens, though, is people don't like that way. They don't like that narrow path. Because there are some things on that narrow path that they're not allowed to do, that they don't get to bring along with them. When Jesus talks about repentance, what that means is you have to leave that stuff behind. You don't get to bring that into his kingdom. But some people don't like that. And so what they want, what they fall for instead, is a fake Jesus, is a false gospel. Uh, as as uh, Paul would talk about that in Galatians chapter 1. And why? Because they want a king that will fit their standards, a king that, that will allow them to live the way they want to live under the kind of rule that they want to live under. Ultimately, they didn't want to live under the strictures and the ordinances, the holy and righteous ordinances of, of God. Um, and and I, I, again, 
It could have been that they had just forgotten him. I don't necessarily think that they had gotten fully to that point yet. Definitely when you get to the minor prophets, there's many people of God that, that have just plain forgotten his word and forgotten him altogether. But, but up to this point, what you have is mixed religion. They've brought idolatry in, and, and they've kind of mixed it in with, with the worship of, of Jehovah. And they've even kind of superseded that worship over Jehovah's. But here, uh, up to this point, God over and over shows them, you don't get, you don't get to choose that and not receive the consequences, the curses of the disobedience. Well, not only that, but I think they reject him by dismissing him as their, their sole standard. Um, as we were just saying with that mixed religion there that they tried back in 1 Samuel 8. And you remember in verse 4, verse 4 of chapter 8, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Now, you kind of look at this and you think, I mean, granted, his sons were not great. His sons actually were kind of like Eli's sons, evil. They didn't walk in the way of their father. They didn't walk in the way of the Lord, certainly. But, I, you know, you, you think about all that and you kind of think they do have a point there. But just because they have a point there, that doesn't mean that you get to come in and change everything. Look at what God did to Eli's sons. They were wicked and God dealt with them. God had rejected Eli's wicked sons. He could have done the same to Samuel's. He could have done the exact same thing that he had done in raising Samuel up to take Eli's place after Eli and his sons had died. And he could have done the exact same thing here, but maybe they just weren't willing to wait for that. Uh, and so I think to a degree there is a lack of faith there. Over in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, in verse 2 beginning, verse 2 of, uh, well, we'll begin in verse 1, we might as well, of chapter 12. It says, Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth, even to this day. Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. He said to them, The Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And again, they admit to something other uh, than what we said earlier uh, in chapter 12 that they, have, they had done wrong in this request and why they were asking for a king. But they even admit to this point that Samuel was still doing his job. It's not like he had kind of waned. He was old. He was in old age, granted. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't still leading. That doesn't mean that God wasn't still using him. God is going to continue to use him even into Saul's reign and, and even into uh, 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 not into David's reign. He dies before uh, Saul actually dies. But, uh, but ultimately, he even kind of is a part of, of David being anointed as the next king of Israel who's going to take Saul's place. And so it's not like he's, he's, he's on his deathbed. He is still working. And he is a good judge. But they say, well, we just don't want to do this anymore. And so they rejected his continued leadership. But in doing so, they put themselves maybe in a worse position. And I think sometimes, because again, you look at Saul's reign and he makes mistake after mistake, failure after failure, and it doesn't lead Israel into prosperity, 
Uh, rather, it ends up, especially when you think about how he commanded the armies, it ends up losing many lives. But, but I, I think you see this, uh, this kind of notion even today. People, they, they don't like what they're seeing at the moment, and they, and they don't like where something's headed. And so maybe like the people of Israel asking for a king, they get Saul because maybe they're tired of, of what they see. They get that king, the king that they choose. I think people can do this with, with leaders uh, even in the church. They d people don't like, and, and Lakeside's in this position. We don't currently have elders. Now, I know that many of us are, are, are tired, and, and all of us, all of us want to have elders that will lead the congregation of, of Lakeside, that we want to fulfill what the scriptures teach that a local congregation is supposed to look like. But let me just ask, for the deep desire and want for elders to, to over, uh, uh, have the oversight of the congregation at Lakeside, does that just mean because of that desire that we're just going to choose whoever to be an elder? It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier this morning. You don't just get to choose an unqualified man. You don't just get to place someone in there because you don't like what you see. Again, it's not ideal. But you don't get to just start adding on to, to, uh, to a, an already unideal situation. And that's what I think Israel has done in their request here. And so I think that's also how they are adding on to this rejection, ultimately, of God. They didn't fully trust in his leadership, uh, even though he had led them up all the way through, through all the things that he had from Egypt, through the Exodus, through the Red Sea, through the wandering in the wilderness, brought them to the judges. And over and over again, uh, uh, Samuel's going to make the case, in, in beginning in verse 6 of chapter 12, throughout the period of the judges, he has delivered them. He says in verse 6, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeribel, which is Gideon, and Bedan, and, uh, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. So what has he gone? He has gone through a, just, a, just a brief, a condensed history of how God has given them the victory, how he has been their sole reason for deliverance time and time again. And now he brings up, now you're worried about a, an, another king that's going to come up and, and is threatening us. And now where has that resolve gone? Where is that, where is that faith gone, that trust in God? Well, they, it had vanished. It was, it, it was no longer, if it was ever at, at a very strong point, it was no longer that strong resolve that would keep them following under the leadership of God. And, 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 and this is why I use the word inconvenient. I think sometimes, many times, people, when things are, are not ideal circumstances, when things get difficult and when they even stay difficult for some time, uh, we end up looking outward and 
especially past the patterns that God has given us, past His will and past His word, and we start looking at how other people have done things. So, so you, you, people begin to worry about how we're not getting maybe enough visitors, or maybe the attendance has really been slacking, and so they, they look at a denomination and they say, this has worked. Uh, and, and look at how many people they're bringing in, and look at what we have been doing. It's not good enough anymore. It's not doing what we want it to do. And so maybe we're going to change how we worship. Maybe we're going to bring instruments in and go past the patterns that God has given us in the New Testament. Maybe we're going to find another way to, to, to collect funds so that way we can uh, spend our, the, 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 the Lord's money on, on even more than what He has given us in the Scriptures. Now, I know that that's kind of a, a absurd example because I know we would never do any, any of that. And, and you just kind of kept adding on with the scenario. But, but I, you, well, that's what you have a lot of the time. People get so upset about what they're seeing around them. And it's just so, it, it's, it's, it's so the opposite of what they want it to look like. And so what are we going to do? Well, clearly this instruction isn't working. So we need to go to some other standard. We need to go to some other source. And ultimately what we're doing is saying, God is not the source that works anymore. We need another one. We need another false God. We need another standard. And clearly that's never going to work. And so I think this is just a few ways that they had rejected God and asking for uh, a king in this way. But even more specifically, secondly, they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to look like the other nations. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, in verse 19. It says, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, after he had given these warnings that God has told him to give, give them, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, we already saw in, in, the, in the chapter that we just read from, in chapter 12, that a part of the reasoning for them asking for a king is because they got worried about this, this, um, this pagan nation, about this king, king uh, Nahash. They were worried about him specifically, and that really, uh, that really was, was uh, I would say, what kind of catapulted them into making this decision. Because of that anxiety, because of that lack of faith, they cry out for a king in this way. And they reject all the warnings that, that God uh, gives to Samuel to give to the people. But especially in verse 20, you, you really see what they want. They don't want a king. They want, they don't want a, they don't want a holy, righteous man like David that, that God is going to choose. But they want a man who's just simply a mascot. They want someone to parade around in the battlefield. It's scary to see a king in front of his army, so let's do the same thing. Was it not enough to have maybe, maybe a, a king that the opponent couldn't see? And maybe they couldn't see the army that was fighting on their behalf. But I just think about back to what Joshua saw when he was, before they were about to take the land, and as he talks to the angel there, the commander of the Lord, how does he respond? He falls down on his face. And I think the people of Israel forgot that about the army that was on their side, about the commander of their army, of that army, rather. And just because he was invisible to the naked eye, to, to, our, to our, our earthly eyes, that does not mean he was not there. And it's so easy just because we can't see the, the battle going on around us, because we can't see how great our God is, you know, physically, earthly. It is so easy to just forget how big he is. Uh, and so I would just say, with regards to this, we need to constantly be looking back here, so that way we can remind ourselves of just how big he is. How great he is, how powerful he is. 
That's why we, that's, that's one of the reasons I really stress a daily Bible reading, not just because we need to know the, this, this book, not just because we need to daily be coming to it for counsel, but because it, it brings encouragement. And I don't just mean that the way people use it all the time today. I mean, it, it literally, it gives us strength to fight the battle that we're in, this spiritual battle, to remember that commander who is greater and stronger than, than all of the other uh, armies that the world can throw at us, that the devil can throw at us. And so, ultimately, they, they, they wanted to look like everyone else and be rid of just what made them unique. Um, and again, that may not look as cool <laughs> as the other nations. It may not look as safe as the other nations. And yet, it was clearly the safest option because this was the only reason they had even survived up to this point. And maybe sometimes we, we forget that as well. Well, uh, going back to Deuteronomy... As I said, it is still a great temptation today to think in this way, uh, and particularly the warning that God gives to the people all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 29 of Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy 12 and verse 29. It says, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going to, in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods, that I also may do likewise? You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. I think it's interesting, especially in verse 32, how that is kind of the conclusion of what he's just said, especially. Don't be like the other nations. And then in other parts of, of even Deuteronomy, he says, you know, don't, don't give yourselves to these idolaters. Don't bind yourselves to unbelievers because that also is going to lead you astray. As we just read with the king in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he wasn't supposed to do that either. Uh, and even with Solomon, a man as wise as he he gets led astray, and that leads to the division of, of uh, the kingdom of Israel. And so uh, you see warnings all over the place that God is trying to give, not just to a king, not just, not just to uh, a judge, but to all of his people. But over and over again, they don't want to listen. Over and over again, they, they just simply ignore that because they want to look more like the world. And again, uh, as, as we were just saying a moment ago, we, it's, it, it can be so easy to look around at people, other, uh, you know, other churches, denominations who, who are maybe bringing in a crowd and we say, look at what they're doing. Look at how many people they're bringing in. That's so attractive. A lot of times sin is attractive. A lot of times doing the unscriptural thing, the wrong thing, is very attractive. But very rarely do we, <laughs> in the moment of, of seeing that, being uh, lusting after that avenue, do we find the... Can we, can we imagine the conclusion that, that it's going to take us? Um, so finally, there's just a couple of things that I wanted to mention and why uh, I think the, 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 the cry for a king was just was, was evil, as, as Samuel puts it, as God puts it. But finally, I just want to answer the question, why is it that God permits it? Why does he grant their request? Well, first of all, and this is one of the, um, th this is one of maybe the main applications that we need to, remember and that is that God gives the people he gives everyone uh, the choice the choice to either go his route or their route 
and you will receive the consequences, whether good or bad, whether, whether the righteous reward of, of faithfulness to God or the bitter reward of faithfulness to the world and to the devil, ultimately to anything but God. Um, again, back in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 20. 1 Samuel 12, verse 20, it says, Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, you have committed all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. So he said, it's already done. You can't backtrack. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. And so one main application we need to take from this is whatever you choose, God, God gives you the choice. He will allow you to make the choice. That's what he has done even before now, when they're supposed to be taking the promised land, before they ever wander for 40 years, they could have taken it that first time that he brought them to the border. They could have taken it in Numbers chapter 13. When the spies came back, even though those 10 spies had a bad report, they didn't have to listen to them. They could have listened to Joshua and Caleb and followed them and Moses and Aaron all into the promised land. But they decide, well... That's a bit too scary for us. They decide that that's not the standard we want. That's not as attractive. And what that led to was 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until that generation died off. And so I go through all that just to say they, they had to live with the choice that they made. And even, it, even here in, in this story, they double down on this after they've been given the warning. They double down on it and they say, no, we want a king no matter what. And so it was indeed an evil, uh, an evil request, an evil demand. Because it wasn't done for, for holy, righteous reasons. And they're going to have to deal with the consequences that come from, really, what you find is, is a consistently petulant child as a king. Because when Saul, uh, not too much farther into the story, when Saul finds out that David's going to be a king uh, after him, what happens is it's just about almost immediately bitterness begins. And from that, much more conflict, much more bloodshed than there ever needed to be up among the same people, David's going to have to flee from his home. He's going to have to flee from, from Israel. And, and you just think, even though Saul made, that, made some of the mistakes he made, he didn't have to die in rebellion. He didn't have to die in such a way as to put himself against the Lord's anointed. Um, but ultimately, he puts himself in that place. Because, again, you get to make the choice. But you're going to have to deal with the consequences. And so he gives them the king that they asked for. He gives them that mascot that they want. In chapter 9 and verse 1, it says that there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacharath, the son of Apiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. So he really looked the part. You skip over to chapter 10 in verse 22. It's 1 Samuel chapter 10 in verse 22. And it says, Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? Now, this is in the middle of, of uh, a story where they ha Saul has already been told that he is going to be king. 
But at the beginning, he's, he's got some hesitation. He's a bit reluctant. He's actually quite fearful. And so the, one of the first encounters that they have with this new king, this, this, this king that's going to go out on the battlefield and be that mascot that they wanted and, and be that scary figure in front of their, the whole army of Israel, just like the king of Nahash or King Nahash. What, how, what's their first encounter with him? He's, he's hiding from, from them, from his own people. Uh, which I, <laughs> I, I just think is ironic. But then you uh, keep going. Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. In verse 23, So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Again, he really did look the part. Physically. But it doesn't take very long to find, and, and, and this isn't to say that he, he only ever made mistakes. There are some moments where he does show faithfulness and some moments where he shows that he has some level of intellect and wisdom. But it doesn't take long before it just spirals out of control because of that bitterness, because of that l lack of faith, and, and, and it just leads to just utter disaster. In, in his reign, uh, and especially for Israel. And so that's the king that they choose. And then I, I think in almost just contrast to that, I think one of the reasons God gives them Saul is to then reveal that his king is different. He looks different, and he is just better. Uh, over in 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, after Saul's been told that... Uh, there is going to be another to come after him and, and be king instead of uh, his, his son. 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 6. It says, When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And so Samuel has come to the, to the sons of Jesse to choose this king that God has appointed for Israel. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, in verse 7, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at that, that, that outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel, and he said, The Lord's not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now I know in verse 12 that it does say that he has beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. But, but I think you still do have, even in a, in a physical sense, a, a stark contrast between David and Saul. Not to mention the fact that you, I think you even see that with his own father and with Samuel. Samuel looks at all of these other guys and he thinks, well, maybe it has to be this one. Jesse doesn't even bring David in, into the mix until the very end after God has rejected all the others. Jesse certainly wasn't expecting David to be the one. Why? Because David didn't really look the part. It, he, he didn't look just like Saul did, it, 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 just for purely uh, carnal and earthly mindsets, just head and shoulders above everyone else, and he just looks like a leader. He looks like a natural-born leader, but rather he chooses a true leader, a shepherd, <laughs> to be a king. Uh, and this just reminds me of what we find in Isaiah chapter 53. 
This will be the last uh, text that we look at. But Isaiah chapter 53. What is Isaiah prophesying about here in chapter 53? But about this suffering servant that God is going to bring. It says in verse 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, there are several ways that I think even David kind of fits some of, especially as you go throughout his life, he fits a lot of the things that Isaiah talks about. Uh, and I, ultimately, I think that's one of the reasons why David is such a, a good shadow of what Christ would look like. But as, as Isaiah is not talking about David, he is really talking about this coming Messiah, which is Jesus. And he says very similar things that, that you would see uh, how people would look at David. That's not what you expect. He is not someone that, that, you, would, that you would look at and think, well, this is, this is definitely the man. But rather, he's going to be despised. And what that means is, did it consider him a small thing? He, he doesn't mean much. And what does God do? He uses that, that man that no one would pick. He uses that man that, that may not look the part. And he uses him to bring the victory. And ultimately, when you get to Jesus, to bring that final victory, salvation. I just think that's, that's beautiful. That all the way back, you can see how God was making this point so early on that my king, I promise you, he's going to be so much greater. And he's not going to make these, these petty, bitter mistakes. And he's not going to make the same decisions that the rest of the, the kings of the world, how they make decisions. But the true Lord's anointed, he is going to be the king of kings. And he's going to make truly holy and righteous decisions. Not decisions that are only going to bring him gain, but that is going to bring uh, a great reward for all of those who follow him. And ultimately, that is what we have in Jesus. And clearly, as always, that's where we want to end, is thinking about Jesus. We can, just like the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we can cry out for a king, a king that we want, that we desire, that does not fit the same qualifications, that does not fit the same uh, standard that Jesus does. And we, we get that. We get to have that choice. Everyone gets that choice. But just like we said earlier, you have to deal with the consequences thereof. You can choose a king like Saul. You can choose a king other than Jesus, but you don't get to follow Jesus into heaven when it's time, if that's the case. But if you choose to follow after Jesus, if you choose to make him king, and I truly believe that, that the kingship, it does not die out with the Old Testament. It does not die out in, uh, after Revelation, but we are still supposed to have that mindset that he is our king. Not just president, not just you know commander, but king. We can have the victory that he tells us he will share that to, to beat death. We can rise in newness of his life. Don't you want that? Is that not so appealing and attractive? If you want that, if you need help to, to uh, be, be converted, to, to give yourself to Christ, to become uh, a part of his kingdom, if you need to be baptized tonight, all things are ready. And we would love nothing more than to help you. If you're a Christian and you feel like you have strayed and you feel like you need the help of the brethren here, that's one of the reasons we're here is 
to try and help each other get to heaven. So if you're subject to the invitation of Christ, by any means, please let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.